The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 10 of the World of Dark Ages podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, Peter, did you get any good presents for Yule? Uh, yeah, I did, actually. I got some uh, hand-sewn medieval mittens from oh. my uh, beloved girlfriend, so that was actually really cool. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, they're uh, made from, from wool and cloth. They're, they're not knitted because that was later on, but they're, they're made of wool and dyed with uh, onion shells, uh, peelings. Okay, what color is that? Uh, it, it turns very yellow if, if you use yellow onions and, and then you just peel off the outer layers, uh, the dried stuff, uh, yeah. and then you can use it for, for dyeing. Okay, well... Um pertinent historical information in the present section <laughs> yeah um yeah uh did you get any role-playing stuff uh well i i did buy something for myself uh but that is for a different line of uh of role-playing games or from, from a different company so perhaps we shouldn't mention it oh <laughs> well i i got a i got a uh, a second edition of a game that is also for a, a different company <laughs> um and i got um a replica um bearded axe viking bearded axe it's just a wall hanger but still you know i i like i like wall hangers as well mm, um cool. so that was that was nice and um Kind of historically, I got a, a book about the 100-year history of the NFL, but I don't think that's really all that pertinent for what, what we're doing, unless we're going to be doing some weird-ass history of, of football. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's probably going to be a lot later if we do anything like that. <laughs> so, before we get into this nefarious business of the Bali, we do have some questions that our listeners have asked us. So we'll just uh, get right into it. Are you ready, Jacob? I am ready. Okay, so the first question uh, comes from uh, Niels Martin, who says, uh, I really want to play a Nick Tutu. Is that weird? And he follows uh, it up with, uh, if you were completely free to choose which of the numerous clans and bloodlines in Dark Ages Vampire 20th edition would you choose? Uh, first of all, Niels Martin, yes, you are weird for wanting to play a Nick Tutu. Uh, Nick Tutu. Uh, but except for that, uh, do you do you even know how many? Uh, this is for you, Jacob. Do you ha know uh, how many clans and bloodlines there is in the twentieth edition? Because I have a list here, and it's quite long. I uh, know that there are thirteen clans. Yeah. <laughs> as for as for bloodlines, I'll guess thirty-two. Uh, well, it kind of depends <laughs> if, if you count kind of the, the sub-clans, but you, you yeah. have uh, 19 uh, non-clan bloodlines, so you have the 13 clans, and then you have the the Aramains, the Anda, the Bali, the Bonsam, the Children of Osiris, the Daneva, the Gargoyles, Giovanni, uh, Impudulu, the Kiasid, the Lamia, the Lyanan, the Nagaraja, the Niktuku, the Ramanga, 
and the Salubri Healers, the Salubri Warriors, the Salubri Watchers, and the True Bruja. Uh, so, yeah, are, are there Holy any crap. of those? And then, of course, we have the Asimite uh, Warriors and Viziers and, and uh, Scholars and City Gangrels and, and so on and so on. Uh, City Gangrels, not yet. They they only appear... Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good idea. Actually, yeah. But you do have the Einherja Gangrel, you have the Ender Gangrel. Oh, God. Yeah, so... Uh. <laughs> so, so um, where do you want to start? Uh, uh, even a uh, a bloodline fan like me can get a bit overwhelmed. I'd say you know if you want to play a Niktuku, uh, it's it's one of those bloodlines where you kind of have to work with the game master uh, because they're not going to fit most chronicles. If if you play a Niktuku, then then that's really going to define the kind of chronicle that you're playing in one way or another. Um, uh, uh, by the way, um, if if our listeners don't know what the Niktuku are, they're they're sort of the uh, the proto Nosferatu from before the Nosferatu went ugly or something like that. Yeah, they're they're kind of this weird, really hiding in the shadows, and do they really exist? Uh, kind of creatures, and from what I understand, they also like hunting the the actual Nosferatu, so it's it's going to be a bit problematic. Uh, yeah, it, it, like I said, they're they're one of the uh, those that really define um, what 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 the chronicle can be. Um, but what was the second part of his question? If if you had if you could play any basically any clan or bloodline uh, in a game, what would you choose? Well, uh, all right. Well, you take that one first. Well, I'm like like I've mentioned times and times before. I'm I'm not really a huge fan of of bloodlines as such. So I don't know if if I'm going to be the boring one here and, and says that I would probably play one of the uh, the traditional clans, uh, but what I would really like to play is actually an old clan Timich. Uh, mm. So so don't that you don't my wife hear that. <laughs> yeah, no. So so that you don't have to go with the whole uh, vicissitude, everything changing and, and flesh crafting mm. kind of stuff. But I, I still like kind of the the classical old school um, Draculian uh, vampire. Uh, not necessarily someone who lives in Transylvania or, or from that, but kind of being this this cool old school. Uh, I don't know if you, if you remember, but it was a meme uh, a while back with where this uh, it turned out he was a professor, but it's it's basically this uh, African American gentleman with really cool facial hair and mustaches, and and he's wearing. Um, well, he's not actually wearing the jacket, but he's, he, uh, he's wearing a three-piece suit with the jacket off, so you can see his um, his waistcoat, and he has rolled up sleeves, and he has all this mm. <coughs> jewelry and stuff like that. So, so I'm thinking basically that, but as a as a Simichi, this this like he looks kind of uh, streetwise and stuff, but he he is also a, a perfect scholarly gentleman and knows everything about the old ways. Uh, and if you mess with him, he's probably going to fuck you up. <laughs> um, well, for me, um, I, I think uh, the people who uh, who know me well and who've played with me when it comes to vampire will know my answer. Uh, absolutely true, Bruja. Uh, oh, I yeah. I love the bloodline. They, for some reason, I have a fondness for playing uh, unemotional. Um, very uh, practical and pragmatic characters. Mm. Um, so I'm not 100% on board with the True Ruja. I think um, Temporis is a bit 
weird. Uh, you could do some some stuff with that, but uh, since Brucha is probably my favorite clan, uh, I, I like everything that has to do with, with Brucha history, and the true Brucha, I think, is a, a great and interesting thing in Brucha history. So I would I would like to, to play a true Brucha. I had uh, the option to play one in, the, in our current um, Transylvania Chronicles game, but in the end, I talk with my uh, my storyteller, who also happens to be my wife, and we we agreed that given the um, what the the chronicle was about, being a true brujeb was was probably going to be more more problematic than than really it was worth. So so I changed it. Uh, so true brujeb would would be the top of my list. Uh, I think number two is something that I've tried before and that I would really love to try again. I I have played an Einherr, yeah, so Viking Gangrel mm, in wow. a game, and that was so much fun. I can uh, and I think it would be fun to play that uh, again in in a Dark Ages setting. But but for me, the the top choice is going to be True Bruja. So do you have any clan that you'd like never want to play? In tabletop. No, as long as it's a clan that that works for the setting, you know, if 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 you have a setting where it would be really weird to have, uh, say, an uh, uh, a follower of Set or an Asamite, or if you're playing a very uh, uh, Muslim-oriented uh, uh, Veil of Night game, when we get to that book, it's mm. it's a really great book. Uh, a Ventru often would feel uh, out of place. But I mean, no. There, there, there's probably some bloodlines that uh, I wouldn't want to play, um, and and you'll hear about that once we get to <laughs> to this book. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's wait with that. Uh, mm. Niels Martin also asks. Uh, he, well, he gives us a scenario um, that our storyteller tells us that uh, this is. Uh, this is not strictly speaking Dark Ages, but I want to run a three-session game focused on the Anarch revol Revolt. The specifics are up to you. What kind of character do you want to play in terms of clan, allegiance, and age? Uh, well, if it's fo focused on the Anarch Revolt, um, it, for me it, it depends. I mean, is uh, are we in charge of our own destiny, or is the idea that we're going to end up in the Sabbat or in the Camarilla? I mean, that's that's the first question I, I would have to ask. Well, let's let's say that it's it's an open uh, it's open ended, so we don't really know that. Where we focus more on where you want to start, and perhaps not where we want to end up. True. Uh, oh, that that's actually that's actually a good question. I mean, it. It would be very easy to say something like Bruja or La Sombra or Tsumish because they really are some of the clans that shaped the mm. uh, the um, the Anarch Revolt. I think, I mean, someone who is... I, I would probably choose to play someone who is very, very idealistic about the ideals of the Anarchs. And I think most of the clans could work there. What I think could be really, really interesting uh, would be to play a Ventrue who is idealistic about the Anarch Revolt. Have someone who was embraced from the um, the new money, new power structure in the cities in the 14th century, uh, who then rejects the the somewhat feudal structure of Clan Ventru and really goes all in on the ideals of the Anarch Revolt 
in a sort of of commune communist way like ah, we are going yeah. to found a confraternity and we are going to rule as uh you know as a as a group um yeah, without kind of, going all yeah. anarcho syndicalist commune yeah yeah so so a bit like like what tyler inspired by the the 14th century english uh, mm. revolutionary yeah that's that's interesting i i think you're you're right on the money when you say that you need to or you want to play uh, an idealistic character because that's that's basically what what that such a game would be about so uh, yeah uh, i i also want to would want to play a very idealistic character but i'm not sure that i would want to play um as on on so to speak the the anarch side uh, again, if, if all of the characters or the players are supposed to be on the same side, then, then of course it would have to be. But uh, I, I think it could be interesting to be on the other side as well, just to to figure out how you would react to it. Like for uh, like if you play a very old and conservative character, would would they be able to deal with it, or how would they deal with it? Uh, what objections would they have, and and so on. Um, but but yeah, I'm I'm also thinking that like the the core, uh, probably one of of the seven, uh, like we, we can more or less throw out the, the what turned into the independent clans, uh, yeah. and I probably wouldn't want to play uh, at Simichi uh, or Alessandro. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of thinking um, an uh, Aventru as well, or uh, or, or perhaps just trying to uh, like like a gangrel or someone who just wants to stay out of it but realize that that for some reason they they can't so so either a very old kind of neutral uh, gangrel or perhaps even bruja who just want to stay out of, of all of this but it keeps messing up for their perhaps the mortal family or or friends or something so they have to take uh, take sides in this or a very mm. young and idealistic uh, kind of firebrand revolutionary uh, bar- up on the barricades kind of, of character. Um, so. Yeah, and I also say to uh, to Nils Martin that um, uh, we're in the same time zone. So if he w- wants to run this, you know, over <laughs> the internet, then uh, I'd be a player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, same, same goes for me. So I, I hope that uh, that answered your questions. Or do your question, um, and he he has one final uh, f- uh, question for us, and that is: apart from the fact that more books were published for it, why is Dark Ages Vampire a better or more interesting game than Victorian Age Vampire? Uh, and he he adds an asterisk that says, uh, "It's a trick question, I know, because it isn't." But why do you think it is? <laughs> well, see, I personally prefer. Dark Ages Vampire over uh, Victorian Age Vampire. Um, and, like, one of the reasons is it has more interesting weapons and armor. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. no, also, um, I like the idea of playing before the Camarilla and the Sabbath. Mm, I like the yeah. idea of of the much broader possibilities that you have. Don't get me wrong, Victorian Age Vampire, I, I really like it. I think the Victorian Age is very, very interesting, very exciting. I think you said good games in it. Um but the Middle Ages, they just appeal to me more. Um, it's a it's a setting that I want to explore more than I want to explore the Victorian setting. 
Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. Uh, I don't think I've actually played Victorian Age Vampire, but I think I've played I, I'm familiar once. enough with, with the kind of stories and settings from from other uh, literature and fiction. So, uh, and, and for me, I'm, I'm kind of on the same page as you are, because for me, the Victorian Age isn't too dissimilar from modern age to be like a, a very novel setting and i think that's especially the... because they set it in 1896 yeah so you still you have phone uh, phones and electricity and everything yeah so so it's it's not different you you could probably run a uh, like so-called modern day uh, game but just set in the 1800s and that would mm. basically be the victorian age uh, and and yeah, I, I agree with you that if if I want to play something that isn't modernized, then I want it to be different enough for it to actually make a difference. Like you mentioned that uh, we don't have the Camarillion and the Sabbath, which uh, is is one interesting thing. So you can actually have uh, a Ventru and a La Sombra uh, and even a Setite. I don't know how it would work out, but you could theoretically mm. have them all in the same coterie. Uh, and I, I also like the fact that that society is so different that you have all these superstitions and, and you have religion as a big part of it. You have a very different um, social and, and economical uh, and political setting. Uh, and, and of course, I'm, <laughs> I'm a history buff and a medieval nerd. So, so I, I think it's interesting to, to run around in it um, mm. at, at least as long as you don't make it too much of a fantasy game because if if i play vampire i want it to be vampire not dungeons and dragons or, or anything yeah. like that i will say i think i think uh the clothing uh, especially men's clothing is a lot cooler in the victorian age it depends on on when your game is set to if, if you play a medieval game but but yeah there are a lot of cool clothes especially if, if we start going into military uniforms uh, in the Victorian uh, Victorian area, but uh, yeah, to to me, it's uh, it, it has a lot to do with the differences rather than the similarities. Uh, mm. And but I'm not saying that that the Victorian age is uh, is a bad place or a bad time period. It's it it's really cool, but for me, it's yeah, it's it's not really what I want um, in in this particular case. So, uh, now we have some questions from John, and he starts off with kind of a similar question, actually. Uh, would you rather play in uh, 1200, the original time period for Vampire Dark Ages, or in 1230, the updated Dark Ages Vampire? Uh, I, I, yeah, I think he actually forgot that... Um... The 20th anniversary edition takes place in 1242, mm. so it takes place a little later. Um, for me, it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, you have these three. You have 1197, the first Vampire of the Dark Ages. You have um, 1230, um, uh, uh, Dark Ages Vampire, and then you have 1242. Um, and all three are good. Uh, if you just look at the time, I would prefer 1242. I like playing in the later period simply because as uh, the later you get, the more you know about it, uh, the bigger the, bigger the cities become, all those sort of things. As long as you don't get too close to the Black Death and the huge upheavals that yeah, happen in both yeah. mortal and canine society, 
then I, I'm for a later start date. However, setting-wise, uh, I really don't like the War of the Princes and uh, the, the, the 20th anniversary edition kind of deals with that. The way the setting is presented uh, for Knights and all that, I actually prefer the original Dark Ages, um, the 1197 uh, first edition. And when it comes to rules, I think in general... Most of the rules are the best in the 1230 Dark Ages Vampire setting. There, there are a few of the upgrade updates in the rules that are cool in um, in the 20th Anniversary Edition. But overall, the rule set, I, I like the Dark Ages Vampire rule set. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I actually answered the question with that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would prefer a game set in 1230 of the two things that he mentioned, or 1242 if we take uh, 20th anniversary uh, into it, but with things taken from the earlier editions. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to answer somewhat similarly, which I don't know if our listeners find it boring, but but <laughs> I, I I either want to play, and it kind of goes back to, to what, uh, what I mentioned about uh, Victorian age, that I either want to play like fairly early so it's around the year 1200s because then we have all of these um the, the things that happen around and where we had a, um, a lot of the the knightly orders were starting doing things in in actually in, in europe and not just uh, the the holy lands and you have uh, the fourth crusades you have the templars starting to uh, have problems with uh, with france you have uh, kingdoms actually being formed up here in Scandinavia, and, and so it's uh, it's quite uh, um, a blank sheet to to play with, uh, mm. and and so you can have you can kind of form your own destiny kind of thing, and and it's also uh, far enough back so that you still have a lot of of mysteries, and and actually you can a bit more of the dark part of the dark ages so to speak you, you still have a lot of mystery and superstition and, and and things like that which i think is uh one of the strengths of of the dark ages setting um i i somewhat agree with uh, the fact that if you start later on you know more about it and and, and stuff like that but i i'm not sure if if uh, 30 or 40 years is big enough of a difference for me to to really care about it, so if I wanted to play a, a Dark Ages game uh, set later, then I would probably really like to explore uh, kind of like actually the time of the plague and and actually the things, the upheavals that that do happen there, because then there's a lot of things going on that you can play with. You have the Hundred Years War, you have the um, uh, the 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 Black Death and and stuff like that. You have the Danish invasion of of Gotland uh, and and <laughs> things going on uh, on on other places as well. So so again, if if you want to change it, change it enough so that there is actually a difference. But otherwise, I I prefer sticking around in the dark and mysterious early setting. Mm. Uh, so and. He, he does have one final question, but I think we're going to save that for last because I think yeah. it, it might go on for a while. So we'll, we're just going to uh, jump to Lars, who says, uh, what clan uh, or clans or clan or bloodlines do you find the most problematic to use 
in the standard setting? Well, uh, with bloodlines, we've we've established just how many there are. Mm. So I'd say it's it's probably easier to answer the question of of which bloodlines are easy to use in the standard yeah. setting because there's so many of them. So I'd I'd say you know uh, that that's that I I can't answer that without going through each bloodline specifically. When it comes to clans, the I would say that the standard setting for vampire uh, the Dark Ages is christian western europe mm. and with that obviously for me the two most difficult clans to integrate are the uh Asamites and the followers of set unless you're setting it uh far to the southeast and the ravnos um they've they do stuff later when we get beyond uh, the first edition of the game they do things that um make them easier to integrate but i've always had trouble integrating them and finally um, when you're playing, if you're playing a uh, an urban-based game, you always have to consider, you have to do more consideration on how to involve a gangrel than many of the other clans. So that would be my answer. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, yeah, we, we talked about bloodlines previously, and that a lot of them, uh, especially for example, the the gangrel bloodlines, uh, doesn't necessarily have to be a separate bloodline, but could just be like a sector cult of. Uh, mm. like Celtic gangrel who are hanging around in this particular place. Um, and, and I agree. I would probably say that the the most problematic in the standard setting uh, for me would be the Bali, just because they mm. are so fucked up and perverted, at least at least if you want to use them as something other than, than antagonists and boogeymen. Um, and and that's the way I interpret the word uh, problematic in the question. Yeah. Uh, be, because you have all of these kind of horrific themes, and and even in a vampire game, is that something you really want to include? Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with your assessments of, of the other way, uh, other other ones that that yeah, unfortunately the, the non eurocentric lands are going to be. Um, I wouldn't call them problematic, but just a bit more difficult to include in your setting. Uh, there are solutions for that, of course. Um, but yes, yeah, as, as a general answer, I would say that that the Bali are probably the ones that <laughs> I'm going to keep the the most distance to. Uh, and Lars also says that uh, he's hopelessly behind on listening to the podcasts. Uh, but he thanks me for getting a different <laughs> microphone. Uh, so yeah, you're you're welcome. I'm glad you enjoy it. I do too. Uh, and then he, uh, I think this question is directed to me, but you can answer it as well. Uh, how do you think the different paths and roads fit with the setting? Uh, Ooh, um, well, if I'm going to answer it, I'd say you know. Um, more and more I lean towards I kind of would have preferred if we just had the road of humanity but I can understand because they included the non-humanity roads for the Sabbath in order to demonstrate how they were inhuman why they then needed the roads for uh, Dark Ages mm. and I absolutely 100% love the way they did the roads in um, in Dark Ages Vampire the second edition of the game where you had a number I can't remember how many uh, major roads, and then each of those roads had four subpaths that you could cho choose to walk uh, in order to sort of personalize the road. Um, I think the roads work okay um, with the uh, with the setting, but um, 
it really depends on the kind of game you're playing uh in our in our Transylvania Chronicles game, I can definitely see why uh, our um, Simish character uh, would not fit on anything even remotely resembling humanity. Uh, so he's he's following a sort of, of Simish-specific path of chivalry. Uh, um, interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's one, like I've mentioned before, my wife absolutely loved the, the Simish. So she's made this path, which is the Simish path of, of honor, where it's mainly focused on the clan honor and the clan um, culture. Oh, uh, cool. So I, I, th- I mean, I think the roads kind of fit in with the the Dark Ages setting, but more and more, uh, I I see people choosing not to uh, to play humanity, not because they their their character concept is necessarily inhumane, but more because they find the road of humanity restrictive and the road the, the uh, whole idea with a, a road a path of morality is that it's supposed to restrict you yeah. so i have a sort of ambivalence uh, about it yeah i i agree uh before we started this project i was actually kind of uh, a bit skeptical at least to to the whole concept because it's it, it can go so far out so that you basically just have it's it's kind of the chaotic, stupid problem yeah. from, from Dungeons and Dragons that oh, of course I'm going to run around and kill children. That's just my character. Uh, but the way they, or at least most of the paths and roads, uh, the way that they are written, uh, are actually quite good. Uh, so so I, I enjoyed. I was pleasantly surprised on on how well they were written and how well they fit the setting. Uh, I do agree that. I think that that uh, humanity is probably one of my favorite ones because it's um, it, it's it's a very if, if you uh, pardon the pun it's a very down to earth uh, version <laughs> like like it it it's more to do with the humanities than with humanity if if you kind of get mm, yeah, the yeah. Gift that like it's it's focused on humans uh, as the thing and not just with the modern setting that oh I still have to be a, a human so to speak. Uh, so to to give you a, the short answer to Lars, yeah, I, I think it, it fits pretty good. There are some uh, that are just a bit too far out there, but you could easily just ignore them and, and don't use them in your games. Uh, but overall, I like the system. Yep. And now we have the final question, which is John's last questions uh, question. Uh, and and this could go on for quite some time, so so <laughs> we'll try to keep this short. But he asks, uh, what is your tolerance for histor- historical inaccuracies? Uh, I use the term loosely in favor of story and plot. Uh... Whew, um, I would say it really depends. When I uh, I I have I wear three hats. Mm. I am a writer. I write books for um, the Storytellers Vault. I am uh, a game master, a storyteller, and I am a a player. When I am a writer, that I have very little tolerance for historical inaccuracies. I do as much research as possible, and I try to fit the story that I want to tell around the the historical facts as I know them. But at the same time, I believe that when you look at real-world history, you really don't have to invent anything or or very much in order to get some really interesting stories going. That being said, if somebody takes what I've written 
and uh, goes whole uh, fantasy on it or, or changes a lot of things, I'm not going to complain about it. As a game master, once again, I really try to look to the historical accuracy uh, as I understand it uh, in the games that I run, in the settings that I build. But, I mean, if characters uh, or players want to do something with their characters that break the mold, we already have vampires, so if I can fit it in... For example, if somebody says, well, I want to play a woman who's also a warrior. I'll go, okay, yeah, yeah. let's figure out a way how this can work. Obviously, you are not going to have been uh, a recognized knight uh, running around saying, I am a woman and I am a knight, but there are ways around it that uh, might not be 100% historically accurate, but still works within uh, the idea of the historical setting. As a player... I make my own characters as historically accurate as possible, but I'm not going to bother too much if other players don't do that and if the Game Master wants to change history. Um, I mean, the, the character that I'm currently playing in Transylvania Chronicles, uh, I specifically did research on he's from um, northern Bavari Bavaria uh, uh, area or... Um, that sort of area. So I did historical research on what names existed in that particular area. Uh, I wanted him to be sort of average, so I did research on what's the average height uh, of that time, things like that. Yeah. But that's just me. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing I enjoy doing. I'm not going to complain if the uh, the, the storyteller takes names that aren't historically accurate. My, my wife, as I mentioned, is a storyteller, and her way of, of getting names for the Transylvania Chronicles game is has basically been to look up uh, players on the Romanian national football team <laughs> and then take their names. That's um, that's an excellent way of naming characters. Yeah, <laughs> so so that's that's my attitude towards it. Yeah, and I I'm I'm going to give the the boring answer and then I'm going to expand it and and I'm going to say that well it depends uh, <laughs> and and what I mean with that is it depends first of all with what what kind of historical inaccuracy are we talking about and why are we using it and how how do the the players react to it like like for example um if if you want to move uh, an event around a, a year or so just just so that it fits into your uh, into your uh, chronicle like the the uh, Battle of Sterling is, uh, is in uh, 1314 instead of, or sorry, in 1313 instead of 1314, and or, or mm. anything like that. Then, then yeah, go ahead, do do stuff like that. But if if you want to do something really weird, like yeah, for for some reason in uh, in the Battle of Jerusalem, there are all of a sudden a bunch of samurai warriors showing up to to help the Crusaders. I would probably not be. As uh, I, I wouldn't enjoy it as much. Let's let's put it that way. But but yeah, as you mentioned, it, if if there are things, the small things that that you change around for for the sake of coolness, uh, then then I wouldn't mind it. Uh, like if if for some reason you you want uh, characters uh, with with eyeglasses uh, before they were actually invented, or at least before we can trace their invention too then yeah just go ahead because it's it's such a small thing and it's 
I don't know if we should use the word realistic, but but believable, uh, perceivable, like the first actual eyeglasses uh, that that we know of is from, uh, or at least in a medieval setting, is, is probably around the 1300s. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that someone smart, especially if, if we do have, like, for example, a vampire who has been around for hundreds of years being able to study all these things that, that mortals have forgotten, they could probably figure out how to grind a few lenses to make a per pair of, of eyeglasses. So in those examples, or, or if uh, if you want a very old vampire running around with uh, Gladius as their sidearm because it's the one they kept since from when they were in the legion yeah then then go ahead uh, yeah but if it's if it's just like yeah you want you want to have uh pirates in the in the 1200s because pirates are cool i would probably have a bigger problem with it um so f- for me i i would say that think it through before you do it and and then have a purpose with it doing it like do do you want the um uh, the the knights of Malta to actually lose the siege of what was it fifteen forty five or whatever, yeah. then then yeah you can you can build an entire campaign around that. Uh, do do you want uh, Saladin and and Richard the Lionheart to meet in a duel in the desert because it serves some kind of purpose? Yeah, go ahead, go crazy. Uh, but if if you just want to throw in cool stuff just because they are cool and they kind of mess things up then yeah please please don't do it while i'm at your table but i'm, I'm not going I to stop it, you from doing it at your table yeah i think it comes down comes down to everyone who's playing the game need to um be aware of why they're playing i mean why am i playing dark ages vampire i'm playing dark ages vampire because uh i love vampire as a role-playing game i think it's a really interesting game i think it's fun to play vampires and i'm playing dark ages vampire because i really like the middle ages um and i want to explore the middle ages and dark ages vampire is great because you can explore the middle ages as as a person that doesn't keel over the minute somebody coughs on them or doesn't die from an infection just because somebody stabs them with a knife. Uh, It's the same reason that I loved Ars Magica, which I've talked about so many times. You're exploring the Middle Ages as a wizard who is capable of um, using their magics to extend their lives and conquer all the little problems that, um, that you would have as an ordinary mortal in the Middle Ages. I actually think that I wouldn't be that keen on a long-running campaign set in the Middle Ages if I just played an ordinary human. Obviously, yeah. it would still be interesting and fun, but you can get so much more out of it when when you don't have to worry about the things that ordinary mortals had to worry about. If there are people who play it because, you know, I think it would be fun to play vampire, but run around in plate armor with a two-handed sword. Then as long as everybody else on at the table is down with that, then you don't need to go into the uh, historical historical yeah. accuracy yeah. depths. Um, and you have to have that balance because, once again, going back to the Transylvania Chronicles, I'm obviously the most historically focused of the, the people playing it. Um but but I'm not going to try and enforce the historical accuracy that I enjoy on everybody else at the table. And we found a really good balance where um, we're, I'm I'm not I'm not worried if things 
get out of hand, and the others uh, don't mind that that I try to inject as much historical accuracy as I, I can into it, while still, as you mentioned, things can be changed. My character in the game is engaged in um, an endeavor to have uh, the um, bishop, uh, bishopric uh, of Transylvania, the, the, the Transylvanian Sea, mm. moved from the city that it is in in the real world to his city because uh, he's interested in the church. And if that happens, then that changes uh, Romanian history forever because uh, of where the bishopric is located. Um, but that is an, uh, something done by a player character by a, a vampire where if it happens obviously because uh you know it's it's done i'm not going to complain about it being historically inaccurate yeah, yeah, and i'm not going to stop my character from doing it yeah, you, you even though i know it changes history yeah you, you still need some some player agency uh so yeah so yeah that's yeah and, and and that's a really good point that like if if it's your character who actually messes up the historical accuracy then then you should probably allow it uh, because otherwise you're just going to to take away player agency. Uh, so so yeah, that uh, I I think that was everything. Uh, unless uh, yeah, we we or did I miss this one? Actually, I apologize. Uh, John also asked, does the name Dark Ages annoy you as it as it's not the Dark Ages? <laughs> That's that's a short one, and we should be able to answer that one quick. Yeah, um, it used to. It doesn't anymore. Yeah, that's uh, that, that, that's basically my answer. Yeah, it's it's a very good one. Uh, I'm um, I'm going to give just a few more sentences to that. It, uh, yeah, it annoys me as much as it does when you talk about uh, actual history because it is a misnomer. Uh, but I've come to accept it because the people who invented it uh, were kind of uneducated and. It's it's been around. It's it's kind of like Turkey is not actually being from Turkey, uh, and <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, that's that's the short of it. Uh, I mean, it's it's it sounds cool, and and we know that it. The, yeah, this isn't the Dark Ages, but I mean, come on, when you're doing a vampire game, Dark Ages just sounds right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, that's it for our first Q and A, uh, and we want to thank everyone that has submitted questions uh, and if uh, people want to submit questions for the next one you can probably start doing it now or we can uh, talk about it in the uh, comment section on Facebook or, or email us or whatever uh, and now we will turn to our own dark side and see what kind of infernal plots the Bali can bring us so, the book we're looking at is Clan Book Bali, and before we get started, I need to issue a trigger warning. Clan Book Bali is a black dog book and deals with a number of unpleasant subjects, including but not limited to mental, physical, and sexual abuse, pedophilia, and human sacrifice. We're not going to wallow in it, but we are going to mention it in the context of the book, so just so people are forewarned. Yeah, this um, episode will be explicit, so so just remember that if you're listening to it with your friends or family. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, Clan Book Bali is written by Lucian Solban, and I'm going to pronounce it Sven Skog. It looks rather Scandinavian, uh, that name, um, and developed by Justin Akili and Richard E. Dansky. Um, as a sidebar on the first page mentions, along with a lot of content warning, this is intended to be an actual clan book, a resource for playing the Bali as player characters, so that's how we're going to approach it. 
But first, the art. What did you think of the cover? Uh, well, the cover is... Uh, it depicts some kind of... I don't know if she's supposed to be tattooed or painted, but uh, a semi-nude lady dancing and some kind of demon-esque uh, figure or statue in the background. And it's it's kind of cliched, but then again, so are the Bali, so it's it's quite <laughs> fitting. And, and it's, it's nothing overly sexualized or or um what is like like kind of exploitative so it's it's kind of okay and and it keeps on with this motif of kind of having the uh, a frame of um of, of pillars that we've seen on other books as well so so yeah it's it's okay yeah i'm see i'm i'm with this, with this picture i'm i'm kind of ambivalent um I, I think I probably like it, but at the same time, like the the background looks a bit, um, for lack of a better word, goofy. But <laughs> yeah. I, I I think I like it. I think it 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 gives a good idea. But like with a lot of stuff in this book, I'm I'm kind of ambivalent about it. Um, the internal art comes in two types. There is some very very well done uh, on a technical level. Um, very detailed art and then there's something that I would almost call it sort of a shaky cam style um, both kinds are pretty good and the pictures are appropriate for the source material but I really can't decide if they're too much or just enough there's some nudity though I never felt that it was gratuitous and there's a lot of fairly unpleasant content involving bugs I, I really can't decide whether I like the art or whether I think it's just you know it's a bit too much um but what did you think of it yeah i think uh there, there are some particular uh images that i would like to cover when when we actually get to them but but overall yeah, yeah I'm, I'm kind of um on the same page as you are actually because uh some of the more like stylistic or as, as you may call it shaky cam um i i find them kind of suitable for for this kind of book because you have mm. all of this like basically starved or tortured bodies and and uh it uh, kind of conjures images of of mass graves or, or similar which is 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 very appropriate for for the bali and the kind of like torture uh and and similar activities that they are going through so uh for for that matter i'm i'm, I'm not a big fan of of the art but i think it's it's appropriate and suitable for this kind of book yeah, um, one picture I have to mention um, is on page 30, where you have um, a close-up of a ship and some of its crew, and one guy is holding what I'm pretty sure is supposed to be a cutlass, which is at least 300 years out of date, and their clothes seems to match that anachronism. Yeah, uh, it, the, the ship as well kind of looks, it's, it's more of a, a, a general piratey ship rather than yeah. an, an actual 13th century uh, vessel. Yeah, I was I was getting a lot of, of associations to like the golden age of piracy, but you know ships better than I do, so I, I, I figured that I would mention it. But uh, I mean, if you look at the right side of the picture, you have what I assume to be the the raised area at the back. I can't remember what it's called, which uh, is is not something they had in those older ships, right? Uh, well, they, they did have in some of them, uh, at least kind of starting a, a, a around this, this time period. Uh, but it's, it, again, it, it's kind of a bit too, um, 
not enough detail to to say for certain but but as mm. as you mentioned the kind of feel that you get for it is more golden age of piracy rather than uh, a 12th or, or earlier century uh, trading vessel yeah um so we we start the book with two black pages one of which has some kind of picture in gray the other has a quote from c.s lewis and a bit of of flavor text i feel that this uh, these two pages could have been better used for more content content inside the book itself um it it didn't really do anything for me to to sort of get into the feel of the book um then we go into store uh, into the history uh, of of the Bali, and much like the cover and the art, uh, sorry, we go into the intro story, not the history of the of the uh, of the Bali. <laughs> um, the 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 intro story, and like I said, this had, has me divided. There's no doubt that it's a very well written story, but I can't decide whether it's just gross and exploitative, or whether it's a good represent representation of the utter depravity and inhumanity of the Bali. Peter, what did you think of this intro story? I, it, it might have been better received back in, what is this, from the, the late 90s, because it's, uh, it, it includes pretty much most of the things that we mentioned in, in the trigger warning in the beginning. And for me, I kind of feel like, yeah, we've, we've seen all that already, and, and it's kind of... Oh no! It's it's another bad priest doing bad stuff, but in the end he turns into the victim of something that is even more inhuman and cruel than than he is, um, which which is, in a way is is it has been done at least now, but it's it's almost it's more than twenty years later, so perhaps it's it's just that we have seen it so many times since then, uh, but there there are a few details in this story that that they actually kind of like um they're, they're actually kind of great but whereas for the most part it's i don't know it just feels cliche but there's there's one thing i actually wanted to touch about and and it's um w- w- one thing that happens is that uh, a, a vampire character uh pushes an, a needle and a thread through uh their own palm and then starts stitching in the body of, of a mortal and uh to to kind of make this uh, network of of uh, uh, embroidery basically in the flesh of a human being and i i kind of like that touch because uh one method of one ancient method of of tattooing is actually uh just an, a needle and a thread usually a bone needle um and and then you would soak the thread in, uh, in, in well not necessarily ink but some kind of, of uh, dye or or coloring. Mm. And then you would you, you wouldn't keep the stitches in the flesh, but you would you would sew through the, the top layers of your skin, uh, and and that would leave uh, enough uh, ink um, or dye in in your body to to cause that too. So I, I kind of like that particular detail, but overall it was. I don't know. It it didn't do anything for me. Um, it's it's quite on par with a lot of the things in the book. That it's yeah, it's it's gross and it shows how horrible the Bali is. But yeah, well done in you. Yeah, it. I think it has a really uh, good, very short depiction of the effects of presence upon a mortal. Um, yeah, the framing story is you have a, a a degenerate priest who decides that he must have this uh, beautiful young boy. 
And and the way it's described, it's quite clear that this young boy, who we later learn is a Bali, has used presence on the priest. And the way it's described from his point of view, I think, is is very well done. Um, that is a good so, point. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, and then I'm I'm thinking like this. It it reminds me somewhat of the sort of of uh, torture porn that um, followed in the wake of the success of the the Saw movies. Like where yeah. you really went for the uh, the grossness and and the horror that was inherent in being um, helpless in the face of this uh, this horror that that was um, that was inflicted upon you. And um, I don't know if I call it a guilty pleasure, but I really like uh, torture porn movies from time to time. I think they can be entertaining. Um, but I don't know if it's something that I want in my game books. So yeah, we're we're sort of ambivalent on this one. Um, so from uh, from there we get into the history of the the Bali in the next uh, in the next part, and it's very well told. The gist of it is that the Bali semi worship entities that are called the Children of Darkness, um, now just referred to as the Children which are beings that fled underground when God said, let there be light. So they, they existed in the darkness before God created light, and then they, they fled from it. So they are beings from before creation. Uh, there is a sort of, of Lovecraftian vibe in that, I think. So you have a tribe of Mesopotamian people referred to as the first tribe, uh, who managed to unearth one of these children when they're digging a well, and they learn about the children and they begin to draw power from their names uh, through taboo-breaking act acts such as cannibalism and human sacrifice. Uh, this setup is solid, I feel. My only complaint is that for Dark Ages especially, I would have preferred something that tied it a bit more to Abrahamic religion, since vampire mythology is already intertwined with that. Uh, but that's just my opinion, and I, I think you tend to prefer things differently, right? Well, no, not necessarily, but um, I I agree that it's the, the beginning of this is, is kind of well written and and it kind of is connected to uh, the Abrahamic religions through the whole letter be light stuff. But yeah, I'm I'm more on uh, again we we talked about this previously that that I I don't want too much non vampiric stuff in uh, in in my games so. Uh, I, I was. I'm. I'm actually still quite on the fence. That is. Is this not weird enough? Is it? Is is like because it's. It's a very much uh, a case of an unreliable narrator in in this oh, yes. section of the book. I feel so. So we don't really get the quote quote unquote truth uh, of of the matter. That are there really uh, these these children? Are they actually real, or is it just something that that the Bali made up to? justify their perversions and stuff like that uh, which which i think is kind of cool um and because if for for example if they would have said that that these are basically the old ones from the cthulhu mythos it would have been a lot worse uh, for oh me. yes very much so so the fact that they kind of keep it kind of vague and and that they don't really tell us what it is they they do mention things like coming from from other worlds uh, which could if if we go down the wrong rabbit hole it could turn into the whole uh Tsumichi, outer space alien thingy debacle that oh that, let's not mention yeah, that yeah exactly so uh so so yeah i'm again i'm i'm 
kind of a ambivalent about this whole, but almost in a good way because it it leaves a lot of room for the well, mostly for the storyteller to decide how they want to have it in in their game. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, so far so good. I mean, yeah. So. Yeah, so the story continues that the humans are worshipping at their sacrifice pit when an unknown vampire comes by and decides to show them what real evil and perversion is. After tormenting the revelers, he throws them all in their pit and bleeds into it, resulting in three new canines. What I think is really great about this is that the progenitor of the Bali isn't named. There's just some suggestions. Among them, probably most famously, uh, Saulot. Mm. Also, of the three first Bali, only two of them are then talked about in the in the book. The last one is is left very vague. Uh, both of these things give the storyteller options to create their own canon, and it leaves mysteries to be chased after in game. It means that if you have um, a player character who's been uh, reading this book, they won't know who the third Bali is, who the progenitor is, which is something that the Game Master can then introduce in their story, and uh, it will be a mystery to the players as well as uh, the characters, which is something I think is really cool. Um, you want to say something? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. That's, again, Vampire is a game where, where the unknown and mystery is, is a great part of, of setting the mood and the entire feel of the game that if if you know everything like if if something happens and you can just say that oh that's that's just an asamite using their third level kivitis powers that's not as fun as just something dark and scary happening so so yeah, yeah I, I i like the fact that they they uh, that they don't they don't fill in all the blanks that they leave quite a few things um unsolved so to speak yeah and after that, we get the story of the evolution of the Bali bloodline up to the current date of the Dark Ages game. And this is very well told. There isn't that much real-world history tied into it, but there are a few names and events, and, and they they all seem correct. One really cool thing that is, uh, is that the mention that the true names of some of the children have been disseminated throughout Europe due to the rise uh, in universities and the increased access to scholarly works as a result of contact with the Islamic world. So the Bali are actually kind of panicking here, trying to prevent uh, the, the, these names of powers uh, being, being spread throughout Europe, which ties in very well with yeah the rise of universities at this time, um, among other uh, things because of the contact with Islam that uh, that happened in in the Crusades and in uh, the Reconquista in in uh, Spain, where uh, Islam uh, preserved and translated these ancient works of the Greeks and the Romans, and now they come back into Europe. So I like how they're tying that into it. That uh, that all of a sudden this uh, this dark powers become available. So overall, this chapter has a lot of really cool and interesting plot threads. I think it's very well written. Um, what is your thoughts about it? Yeah, I I agree that it is very well written. There there is just from from a historical point, I'm I'm just going to nitpick one slight thing, and that is that one of the reasons that this information gets so widespread is is that um, Muslim scholars have learned uh, the art of making paper, and that's a lot cheaper than making parchment, so it can knowledge can spread more easily and in, yeah, that's that's kind of true, but at the same time, uh, one of the reasons why I use parchment is because it's it's very sturdy and durable and, oh, yeah. and lasts forever. 
uh, as opposed to paper. Uh, and so, so it would actually be harder for, for information to, to spread or survive long periods of time if it's just written down on paper because paper will degrade quicker. Um, and, and also the problem with, um, with, with uh, copying texts uh, during this time period isn't that the material used are so expensive, but rather the time it takes because this is centuries before the printing press, at least in this part of the world. Uh, the Chinese ha had them at probably even earlier, if, if I'm not uh, entirely mistaken. But, but what you had to do to copy a book was literally to, to have someone, usually monks, to sit down and copy it word for word by hand. So that would be the bigger um, obstacle for, 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 from uh, being able to spread books uh, around the world rather than not having access, access to, to cheap uh, materials to make the books from. Yeah, because if you, look at, if you look at the kind of people who would want books, for them, the, the cost was never the issue. They, they wouldn't be deterred by the cost of parchment at all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if... and, and especially since considering the total cost, the cost of the materials would be negligible. Yeah, it, this is like, if I recall correctly, at least 50 years before uh, they started, there was a process that got started in in Italy, um, like I, I think it was around the 1250s, where they, where they sort of um, made almost an assembly line copy system. I can't remember what it's called, uh, I read about it recently, where you were suddenly able to copy books quicker. Still not anywhere near as fast as when you had movable type, but, but you would still copy books uh, quicker than back uh, at this time. So you're right that books wouldn't spread uh, or knowledge wouldn't spread as fast as it's been uh, it's being portrayed here. Yeah, but but to answer your actual question, yeah, I, I did like this this part of the chapter, uh, especially since uh, or or I don't know how, how far down we're going, but but again the the unreliable narrator uh, and yeah. and it it kind of has this whole um, not not everything bad, but a lot of bad things that has happened to other vampire clans is actually due to the Bali messing with them and, and cursing them or just generally fucking about with them. Uh, and and I like it because on the one hand, I, I don't want, for example, the Brujas uh, frenzy to be a cause uh, or, or be caused by, by the Bali messing with them. But on the other hand, this is exactly the kind of thing that uh, a bunch of, of infernal corrupt vampires such as the Bali would tell other people just to further fuck with uh, with with the Bruja. Uh, so so those kinds of details uh, I I really like. There are a few other mentions that they curse the Asamites with the bloodthirst and and things like that. And mm. if if I'm if I'm including the Bali in my game, I'm totally not going to have uh, the Asamite <laughs> uh, bloodthirst be a, a result of a Bali curse. But I'm totally going to have every Bali believe that and tell that lie to everyone who's willing to listen. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a really good point uh, to basically, they're, they're aggrandizing themselves. They're saying, look at how uh, powerful we are. We can we can uh, make the other clans weak. We can give them their weaknesses. Um, so, so yeah, that is, um, that's a, a really cool point. Uh, I, I think this chapter is also filled with, with story hooks 
um, for uh, not just for anyone who wants to actually run uh, a game with barley, but uh, if like me, you like using barley as antagonist. Mm. There's a lot of stuff for people to discover about the the bloodline um, that that's scattered throughout this. So in the end, I think that it is a really cool chapter. Um, so from there on, we move on to chapter three. Unless you have more you want to say about chapter two. Uh, no, I I don't think so. I might come back to something if if there's something mm. that that pops up. But uh, yeah, uh, let's let's move on. Yeah. So chapter three um, is the uh, the uh, sort of character creation and rule stuff. Uh, it looks at clan structure, hierarchy, and, and character creation. Uh, we get a cool option in the form of the apostates, characters who have left their original clan behind and joined the Bali. Um, obviously, you have other situations where clans sort of try to take over members. There's the, the classic, uh, the Setsites corrupt someone. But here you specifically have um, a sort of um, uh, mechanic for people leaving their own clan and going over to the Bali. Uh, so I, I think that's a, an interesting uh, possibility. It, it also allows for a more diverse clan and you can have the whole paranoia. You never really know who is, uh, who is a part of the Bali. Uh, we're also introduced to a subset of Bali who worship swarming insects. Uh, and then we get the Dahabi line of revenants who are um, yeah revenants that serve one of the uh, three progenitors of the Bali line. Uh, and finally, before we get to the specific rule stuffs, we have the standard opinions on other clans. Again, all of this is well-written and interesting. And like I said, even if you don't want to run Bali as player characters, this is good for making complex and interesting uh, NPCs. Um, so what is your comments on this? Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's There's a lot of things that are, are good for... Um, for for fleshing out, uh, pardon the pun, the um, the Bali to make them more more than just the, the scary boogeyman in the darkness, uh, and there there are there there are a few things that I really like, and but the one thing that I'm kind of having difficulties with trying to figure out how to use is um, you you mentioned them already the the ones that worship the swarm or insect and and basically. What I could figure out, the only thing they do is is basically just breed a bunch of of flies in in mortals and then just releasing them to uh, to spread diseases. But I I could I don't know I I'm not sure if I missed it, but I couldn't figure out their end game. So so they're kind yeah, of they, like they seem to be very one sided. Yeah. So so like yeah, what are we supposed to do with the with them? Like are are they just going to try to spread the, the plague to everyone or, or do they have a higher purpose or whatever like so so again it's and and we mentioned some of the, uh, some of, of similar things when we talked about others like the the there are some cool concepts here and there all through the dark ages but turning them <coughs> into a full-fledged bloodline or or like a subset of of an entire clan uh it kind of inflates them in a in a way that that you don't really they they kind of loses their purpose. Like I could have like a small sect of of Bali in one place doing these things like breathing uh, diseases in in corpses uh, corpses and live humans, trying to to spread diseases or or destroy a city. Like that could be the entire game for for 
if not a campaign, then at least part of it that we need to save the city from or this this part of the country from these uh, plague spreaders. But having them like be a, a part of of the Bali society is. I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time imagining like like a, a Bali get together, and and in in one corner they're just a, a bunch of Bali covered in flies from head to toe. Like, what wh- what are you going to do when you're not poking about in your corpses and and insects? Yeah, they seem very much to be sort of set up to be um, uh, antagonists who are uh, horrifying and creepy because of the reaction that most people have to insects. Uh, I don't think it's a a coincidence that the intro story has one of these worshippers of the swarm, because the whole idea of being infested by insects, it triggers in most people a very visceral reaction. But if you go beyond that, you're right. What the hell do we do with them? (laughs) I I like your idea of them just sitting in a corner being covered with flies and all the other barley going... Yeah, yeah, we we don't really yeah, talk about those they're, guys. They're the cousins from out of town. Yeah, and and don't get me wrong, the 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 concept of them is is disgusting and horrifying, and I love it. Uh, so there's there's definitely use for it, uh, but again, just just as something because if you if you use something too much, it's going to lose its appeal. Yeah, they more more than anything else in this book feels like they were written as NPC antagonists rather yeah. than an option for something to play. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, yeah. So the rule stuff. Uh, we start with two new knowledges: demonology and plague breeding. I can see the value of demonology, but plague breeding seems to me to be just a bit too fanciful and narrow. I I. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, especially since, uh, like, when are you going to use it? Again, it's, it's if, if, if you're going to have plague-breathing uh, Bali, then you're most likely going to have them as, uh, as NPCs. And then they don't really need a separate, uh, a separate knowledge just for that. And, and yeah. especially since that uh, it... On, on the list of people knowing it, they mention both Bali Nosferatu and Brigand Captains. And I'm, I'm having a, a hard time seeing that, uh, that, that a, a brigand or, or basically any mortal would want to do this kind of stuff. And it's, it's also kind of weird because it goes from the first dot of it is, you know that letting a corpse rot brings flies, which is, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. But then it goes fairly quickly into basically modern biology stuff, like like creating new diseases and stuff like that. And and that's that isn't really something. Again, you could you could incorporate some kind of of mystic uh, level into it by saying that it's it's part of of the kind of Bali magic that you do it. But then mortals shouldn't have access to maybe more than than one or a few dots in it. No, I mean, I mean. It, the understanding of um, of biology at this point was very much tied into the whole four uh, elements, four humors yeah. of uh, of the Greeks. So, getting any kind of of uh, modern day understanding of virology or bacteria or something like that, it it just it it would not exist at this point. So, yeah. 
we then have a new look at the road of uh, the devil from the barley perspective and a new road via Hyron, road of the hive for those barley who worship the swarm. I think the, the road is very well written, but I couldn't find anywhere where it said if the road uses, road uses conscience or conviction uh, or whether it uses self-control or instincts. So uh, they, they missed something there. I'm guessing that it's probably it probably uses conviction and instincts, but it never actually says. Yeah, that's, it, so, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. But, but yeah, uh, that's a good um, point. And, and then we have merits and flaws. I like the apostate merit for creating defectors from other clans. Uh, otherwise... With the merits and flaws, I mean, there's nothing special in in my mind with any of those flaws. Uh, with any of them that that stood out to you? Well, the the one that really stood out was was the Lord of Flies, which is a two point flaw, which basically you're you're covered in flies all of the time. And <laughs> okay, and, and, <laughs> all all the, the the worshippers of the swarm have that one. Yeah, when exactly. They sit in their corner. It's not a flaw to them, but no, but but seriously, a, a two point flaw basically making you. Uh, unable to to hang out with with mortals. Uh, I don't know. That's that's kind of a bad deal. But then again, they're Bali, so uh... yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I just I I can't get that image <laughs> out of my mind of these like three Bali sitting in yeah. the corner covered in insects, and all the other Bali just looking at them, going seriously, guys, seriously? like the, for we, real. We do have soap, you know. Yeah, again, it it, <laughs> it kind of ruins the the mood for for everything. But uh, yeah, no, the, again, some of the merits and flaws are are like kind of cool. Um, I'm I'm not sure that they would be useful or interesting for for a player character, but again, it's it could be useful as a storytelling device uh, for to to uh, include for an NPC so that so, so that the players know that something weird is up. Uh, mm. But yeah, it, it's it's kind of meh in my book. Yeah, uh, we end with two discipline powers and one combo discipline. One of the discipline powers is level 10. So I'm basically going to ignore it. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's level 10, so the, the hell are you going to say about that? Um, the other is called Glimpse the Gulf Beyond, and it's level 6, and I really like it. It's very thematic, and it feels appropriately powerful for a level 6 power. It basically... Uh, uh, forces someone else to see either hell or whatever else the Bali's vision of the beyond is and it it obviously you know affects their mind so I think that is a really really cool interesting power that uh, I could definitely see uh, an antagonist use to unsettle uh, player characters who are their enemies the combo discipline is a lot of fun it allows a Bali to te be temporarily possessed by a minor demon or spirit who can then answer questions, meaning that the Bali can be interrogated uh, with lie detecting powers and not be outed as a Bali. And and I mean, this makes sense considering how much they're trying to uh, to hide themselves. Yeah, I, I agree. That was that was kind of fun, and it's it's a lot of this. Uh, I'm technically not lying, but I I'm also definitely not telling the truth. Uh, and 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 again, like you mentioned, it's it's very fitting for the Bali, um, and and I also agree that uh, uh, glimpse of uh, glimpse the Gulf Beyond Power, the level six that you mentioned, is is very appropriate and could probably, if used right, be really cinematic as well. If if the storyteller actually describes what the the character sees, uh, and and then if you want to, you could probably include some kind of 
Lovecraftian uh, stuff in it because it's it could be that kind of it could be interpreted that kind of way. So again, you you kind of tie back to to this otherworldly, um, almost Cthulian, um, ancient, otherworldly thing, whatever it is. Uh, it's it's yeah, something, just something... That, that cannot be understand by mortal or even immortal. Yeah, mind. exactly. I, I I do want to touch upon the the level ten power because it's it's basically summon Cthulhu. Uh, and, yeah, it and is. I just kind of I I like the fact that that they actually mentioned that it it has only been tried what or in in all of vampire or at least Bali history it has only been tried three times and it has failed all of those times because otherwise the world would have been destroyed basically so so I I like the fact that they kind of include it uh, or or rather that they include the option that that Bali are more or less actively trying to uh, again summon Cthulhu or something similar to it but it it feels kind of silly like you mentioned it's a level 10 power so it's only generation 3 and above that could actually use it so it, I, I think it would be cooler if they included it as either as a ritual or just as something that that the Bali has tried three times and it has failed all those times and and aren't we lucky that that they have because otherwise we would be royally fucked so yeah so just have it as a as an as a storytelling device because and and again we've talked about this before as soon as you put something down with with actual mechanics in the game it loses a lot of the mystery and appeal to it because technically this is something that a player character could achieve but is it really something that you want your players to be able to achieve just by spending a bunch of experience points? It, it's, it, it doesn't work for me that way. So I, I'd rather have it mentioned more, more in the um, fiction or in the fluff section of the books rather than in, in the mechanical rule section of the book. And also the fact that they've made it level 10. Because if you go by... The fact that it's level 10 and and extrapolate from that, that would mean that the original three Bali that were created were third generation, which would mean that they could not have been created by, say, Saulot. They must have been created by members of the second yeah, generation, exactly. which raises a whole lot of weird-ass <laughs> questions. Unless, of course, you have a Bali that's managed to commit diabetes upon an antediluvian, which is something that should have been mentioned. Yeah. I think later on they introduce a similar power as level 9 instead um, but uh, I, I can't remember in what book that is so we might um, we might encounter it later but I, yeah as as a sort of a framing device for a story we need to stop them before they they try something like this it's a it's a good idea it just like you said it could have been presented a little bit better um, from here we move on to chapter 4 which are sample character templates um, do you have some comments on those people well, this is where I wanted to just point out a couple of the the artwork or the pictures that that we talked about, and and there's a lot of hats. Yeah, there's a lot of hats, and and some of them actually look kind of good. And uh, I, I'm just the the thing in particular that uh, that I want to point out is that a lot of the the clothes, uh, especially for the Judas goat and for the Champion of Chaos, uh, are. Uh, they they are actually kind of medieval, but they are a few centuries too early. So the the Judas goat, for example, he's he's wearing what could probably be described as 
as as late 14th century uh, attire especially those shoes yeah exactly has has very long pointed shoes and and he has uh, the sleeves of of his under tunic goes out there there seem to be buttoned all the way up to the wrist and they kind of cover go all the way up to the base of his thumb which is very time appropriate mm. for the 14th century and not not for the uh, 100 years earlier uh, the interesting thing about him, though, is that he he's holding a dagger that, to me, looks very much like uh, a Fairburn Sykes fighting knife from from, from the Second <laughs> yeah, World War. Now that you mention it, yeah, yeah, it, it does. It and, does. <laughs> and I'm I'm guessing that perhaps the the artist had something similar to it lying around. And I, oh, I just need a dagger, and I, I need to uh, depict it. So. Uh, so so yeah, it's 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 a nice picture, but I'm I'm wondering where he got that dagger. Um, um, I I should we should probably mention if people look at that picture, it's on page fifty four, and they think that the shoes look ridiculous. Uh, people did wear shoes that had that were that long and pointy, and even longer and pointier. Yeah. Uh, not at, not in eleven ninety seven, but it became fashion to have very long pointy shoes. Uh, so as silly as they look. They would come into fashion. Yeah, uh, and and as you mentioned, even pointer uh, shoes like that, and and you see them a lot of in in the gothic artwork, uh, or or the gothic style of of uh, both fashion and armor making as well. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, it's uh, it it probably has to do with the fact that if you have really long and pointy and thus impractical impractical shoes, you show off your wealth because you you tell everyone that. I don't need to work in a field, or I don't need to to ride around doing stuff. I can I can just prance about in my castle or in my mansion or whatever uh, with these fancy shoes, not having to do any kind of of actual work. Um, yeah, and and you see similar you... things with um, with the hoods, with the very long they're called lira pipes, the kind of, of a tail going from the the end of the hood, uh, just. The, in in some time periods, the longer the better, basically, because it just shows that you have a bunch of extra fabric that you can uh, that that you don't have any use for, but it's it looks kind of cool. Yeah, um, if you pop to page sixty-two, the vile temptress. Now that we're speaking of of sort of later fourteenth-century uh, outfit, I feel like her headdress is also more fourteenth-century because it's as broad as it is. Um, and I re I recently watched a video. Um, I think I also posted on our Facebook page about um, female Jewish dress in the Middle Ages, where someone, where where the woman presenting it, did uh, a a head um, scarf that ended up looking very similar to this actually, and she was talking about how that was a sort of late fourteenth century look, this very broad look. Um, so it's kind of fun when I saw this. I thought, hey, that. That actually ties into something I've just recently watched. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, and, and you did uh, you did post it in in our Facebook group, so uh, mm. check it out. But if uh, if we will go back to page uh, sixty, we have the champion of chaos, who is basically a uh, some kind of of freelance knight uh, mercenary for hire, uh, and I actually kind of like his outfit because. If if we start from from the top, he's he's wearing a, a male coif and and a hood and and what I really like is that he, or at least I choose to interpret it in in that he's wearing a kind a style of helmet where he had uh, a nasal protection that was actually yeah. uh, attached to 
uh, to your chainmail coif, and and then it was basically a bar uh, shaped kind uh, uh, kind of like to, to leave room for your nose, but but it was uh, just just an oblong uh, bar of metal that you would then attach to uh, to the front of your helmet, so you would have some kind of of uh, uh, cover for your or protection for your face. Um, and I can see if I can find some pictures to, to post because they're amongst the most ridiculously looking um, <laughs> facial protections I, I've ever seen. And, and they're just, yeah, I, I love the fact that this artist has actually uh, seen it and, and wanted to depict it because it just looks, especially with, with the nose cover up, it just looks stupid. And I can think of so many reasons why it fell out of fashion uh, and and just the silliness of it probably being one thing. Um, yeah, and he also has he has the the male coif pulled up uh, to just over his chin, mm. which is very nice to see because if you look at um, artwork, if you look at uh, movies, if you look at TV shows, it's very often that if someone is wearing a male coif, they will they will wear it very openly. But but they pulled it up as far as they could in order to protect their faces. And here he has it to his chin, which is really nice to see. Yeah. Uh, and and again, his his entire outfit is uh, is actually very historical. Uh, but again, a few centuries too early. Uh, yeah, he's wearing sabatons and he's wearing full plate gauntlets. Um, and I can't I can't really figure out if he's meant to be wearing a breastplate uh, and that that only goes down to like his waist. Or if he's supposed to be wearing maybe a brigandine or coat of plates or something like that. But you're right; it's it's just yeah. It it could be uh, what's sometimes called a, a corazina, uh, which is kind of uh, of in some ways the uh, the precursor to a brigandine, and it's kind of a, <coughs> um, a mix between a coat of plates and and a brigandine, and it it came about in the late uh, 14th century. Uh, and it was kind of like the the cheaper uh, version of of breastplates, but it it also has coverings for um, for for your lower abdomen and, and upper thighs. So it could be that. Mm. And but what I really wanted to point out uh, again with with kind of silly things that quickly fell out of fashion is that to his breastplate or or to the chest piece of his armor, uh, he has chains that are connected to his to his sword and dagger. And this is actually historically correct, uh, especially in, well, what is now Germany, but uh, in, in the German states, it was in the 1300s, um, around the mid 1300s, it, it was a thing to do that you uh, connected your your weapons and sometimes even your helmet to chains uh, connected to your breastplate so that you wouldn't lose them during a battle. Or, uh, for example, uh, if you were a mountain knight, and you had a great helm over your uh, smaller helm just for the initial clash uh, with lances, and then you would take off your helmet to to be able to breathe and see better, uh, and you would you wouldn't lose it. Uh, at least that's that's the idea behind attaching attaching things to you. Uh, but as as from at least from what I uh, figure is that people quickly found out that having a, a sword or a dagger or, or a helmet dangling from your body when you're trying to fight, <laughs> it's, it's probably yeah. not going to be that, that comfortable. And <laughs> no. if you, unlike this gentleman, uh, uh, isn't covered 
in in uh, armor from head to toe having a dagger dangling about your somewhat unprotected body or even your horse is going to cause problems sooner or later so again th- yeah. th- that was one of those ideas that kind of like yeah this seems like a really good idea so we should definitely do it and then just a few decade decade decades later people realize that no this wasn't a good idea let's never do this again uh, yeah um his sword is described as being a great sword which once again uh, a couple of hundred years too early mm-hmm. though if you look at it it looks more like a long sword you have the um rather than a fuller you have a central ridge uh, uh the length of the grip the length of the blade and the fact that he has the scabbard for it on his side mm-hmm. indicates to me that that it it's the size of a long sword which once again is is too early but it's it's nice looking it's unappropriate for the rest of his equipment. It really is. Uh, and if you look at the way that his sword is attached to his belt, if we're getting very nitpicky, that is also time appropriate for the rest of his mm. um, his his equipment. I'm I've, yeah, I'm the type of person who watch videos on how were uh, scabbards attached to belts in various yeah, time I've, periods. I've built a few scabbards myself, so <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about with this guy, because we've talked about him a lot, but there's a lot of interesting things, um, or rather there's two things. The first is he's described as in the distant days before you embrace, you were a great warrior, chieftain over a band of raiders uh, whose waves uh, of pillage and plunder swept across the Western world. And they mention Aragon, Iberia, the forested Balkans, even the frozen north. So you're kind of thinking, okay, was he a Viking? But if you look at him, he has no beard, but he has a huge mustache, which is the signature look for the Franks. Um, yeah. So he could have he could have been a Frank. Um, in fact, if you take this description plus the way that he looks, uh, I don't know. I don't think that it was intentional, but it just screams like a a Frankish warlord from the Charlemagne period. And then there's his cloak. I love the fact that um, instead of being fastened with a brooch or anything, it just has a a continuous amount of fabric running across his chest. It does look like it gets in the way when he uses his sword, so either he should have put it further behind his shoulders or taken it off. But from what I understand, this was uh, not an uncommon way to wear a cloak rather than having some kind of way to close it in front of you. Because when you're wearing something where it closes in front of you, I, from when I've done it, it tends to for me to ride up against my neck actually. Yeah, yeah, it does, and there there are ways to to get around that, but it's usually like fighting in in a cloak isn't really a good idea because, like you mentioned, it it's, it kind of rides up, and and also of course it can get stuck in in things. Uh, it uh, uh, it can be used to grab you and and stuff like that. So so yeah, it's what what is that movie, Incredibles, where where you have the no cape, no policy. capes, yeah. <laughs> That they, um, they knew that yes. even back in the medieval days. <laughs> no capes. Yeah. Uh, well, no cloaks. Mm. If you have a cape which came uh, later, you and you weren't using a shield, you could quickly wrap it around your uh, your arm. But of course, at this point, most people were using shields. Mm. Um, so um, we end with a few notable barley. Nothing much to say here. I think you know it's names that most people will recognize. It's always nice to uh, to get them involved. So, uh, so I, I don't have anything to say about those people. No, I'm 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 just going to throw out there because we had one book where uh, where there was a subsection for the NPCs that 
uh, the what was it called their destiny or something like that that we oh, found yes. out what happened to them in basically in the in the modern days uh, or if they survived that long at least and I wouldn't mind seeing something similar uh, for these characters <clears throat> yeah so so that you um, know how to build them up and how to use them yeah uh, I, that is. Um... I think that's that's very much a um, a sort of uh, point of contention. Some people like you really like it. Other people say that they feel constrained by that because they they want to make up their own uh, destiny. My my attitude is uh, I think it's a, a wonderful tool because you, if you don't want to make up a destiny for these characters, you have one ready made. But if you want to make one up, there's nothing that prevents you from changing it. Obviously, if players have, have read it, they might go, oh, but that's not what the book says. And then you go, well, no, but this is my game. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so let's take an overall look at the book. When it comes to history, I don't think there's much to say. As is usually the case with these clans books, there's not much real-world history. But there is is um, generally pretty good i think we've covered the the places where they make some uh, some missteps but do you agree with that yeah i do uh they one one small thing that i don't think we mentioned is that a lot of the names that the early bali used uh, are the names of uh of deities from the the area from the uh, the levant and the, the tigris valley uh which i kind of feel is appropriate but because it doesn't have to mean that White Wolf is suggesting that that some of the gods were actual vampires, but rather that uh, the the Bali in the request for power took on the identity of, of for example, Nurgle, uh, which is uh, an an actual uh, deity uh, in I think in ancient Babylon. in Warhammer. Yeah, <laughs> no, no different spelling completely for for yes. legal reasons. That's a completely different person. Uh, but, yes, it is. But, but yeah, we we have that. So so if if you wanna uh, if you want to learn more about uh, ancient Babylonian um, or and I think Assyrian religion, you could probably uh, just Google half of the names and and realize that they are. Um, they, they're taken from from reality. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, that's that's a nice touch. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I agree with your assessment on that part. Mm. So, as a game resource, uh, well, so I can't see myself run a game with more and more Bali characters. The way I see it, there are there are basically two ways it can be done. You can either run an all Bali game, and I would be afraid that that would just devolve into evil for the evil's sake. Plus, when you look at what the Bali are being depicted as doing in this book, um, there's a number of people that I play with normally where that sort of thing would just be a no-no anyway, so we wouldn't be able to run a game. I wouldn't feel comfortable running a game that involves some of the uh, things that are being done here. Or you could have a player who is playing a secret Bali in a group and I would just think, what's the point there? I mean, I, I one of the people that I play with, I know would think that that would be the greatest thing ever. But uh, you you have a situation where if they're discovered, they're at the very least going to be thrown out of the group. Otherwise, they're probably going to be killed. And if they're not discovered, then 
What is the point of running around being a secret Bali in a group? Now, that being said, if you were to run a Bali game, this is a great resource. And since I really like using the Bali as antagonists, this book is a great resource to make more interesting antagonists and also add more lore about the Bali for the players to discover. When you introduce them as antagonists, they can start doing research on their enemies. So from that angle, I really like this book. Though I will say, I think a lot of people will be put off by the depictions of, of abuse and taboo-breaking behavior in this book. So what's your take? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on a similar uh, vein as you are in there. That I, I, I don't really see the point of, of ever playing uh, a game with, with Bali as, as the player character. Because as you mentioned, they're, they're either going to be too fucked up to, to actually like be enjoyable to play or because you're sitting in a corner covering yeah guys. exactly that's 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 the other part of it or or if you want to like i could see the appeal of of wanting to uh, wanting to play like the the debauched uh, kind of infernalistic devil worshiping vampires but you don't really need to be a bali to do that you could just as easily be a toreador or a lasombra or whatever like if if you just wanted those aspect of it without going full Bali, so to speak, uh, because I'm, I'm also thinking that for me as, as a, uh, uh, player, if, if I wanted to play, for example, a devil worshiping vampire without actually doing all of the really depraved stuff that, that the Bali are known for, uh, I, I could play a Bali that doesn't really do all the Bali stuff, but then again, what's the point of it? So, so if mm. I'm, if, if I want to, embrace pun intended the the more hedonistic or or infernal aspects of of a uh, vampire character i'd rather do it as another clan because then it would actually serve a purpose to show how depraved and and far gone that character actually is than just be this 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 menagerie or coterie of of evildoers like kind of like twirling in the mustache and 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 uh, kind of figuring out who they're going to torture tonight because w- what else are Bali going to do? So, so from a player player perspective or, or for, uh, from a player side of things, I I don't really see a use for for the Bali. Uh, no, I'm 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 thinking like you have you have the two Bali and one of them goes so. What are we going to do tonight? And then the other Bali goes, same thing we try to do every yeah, night. Exactly, trying in to the world. destroy the world. Uh, yeah, it's it, and and it becomes just that sort of thing. Yeah, and and so so from that aspect, yeah, no no Bali for me, thanks. But on the other hand, as you mentioned, they would make great antagonists, uh, and and or at least like. Uh, I, I wouldn't use them or I wouldn't make them so numerous because again that's that's kind of a problem with with all of the vampire stuff is that for for every clan that may, they mentioned that oh they have infiltrated everywhere and if that was true then there wouldn't be anything left to infiltrate because you would just run into other wa- vampires all of the time so, yeah. At least they didn't mention that that the Bali make uh, their haven in in the monastery. No, but they do mention so. that they like abandoned churches, though. They, uh. <laughs> they did. We couldn't get away from it, even with the infernal. No. But but yeah, like have them as this kind of small. Actually, keep them small and and cultish and uh, 
so so that uh, again like we mentioned with with the um, uh, combination discipline power that you don't you can never know who is a bali and who isn't that you've heard of them and they according to to sources they are everywhere and they can corrupt your soul and and eat your liver and whatever but when you actually meet an actual bali that should be uh, like a moment in and of itself that holy shit i'm I'm more or less face to face with with the closest thing to a literal devil I will ever encounter. So if you keep them small and and kind of concentrated and uh, secretive, then you can use them as a really powerful storytelling tool. And and for that purpose, this book has some really good plot hooks, like you mentioned in in the history chapter and and in everything else. There are a lot of things that you can use uh, as storytelling devices and plot hooks. To make really great stories involving the Bali, but I would never see they, myself playing one. Yeah, I think they could be really great in in a sort of a power corrupts oh, yeah, uh, yeah, story definitely. where where you have the Bali who can offer uh, power to uh, to others. Um, if you have a player and uh, who who has a certain goal in mind, you could have a Bali that that offers them whatever they might need not not the end goal but wherever they might yeah. need to attain that goal um and for me as someone who likes to involve um in in my dark i, I when i run dark ages games i like to involve uh abrahamic religion and i like to involve um demons and things like that when it is appropriate um and and for for me that uh, this is this this is where the Bali are really really good because that allows me to introduce something uh, as an enemy that is different from vampires. But I mean, you, as you said, you prefer to have just vampires in vampire. And here the Bali are also interesting because they are vampires, and then you can just have their powers that come from somewhere else yeah. without having to involve demons, devils, or whatever. Um, so there's 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 different ways of, of looking at it. Um, so yeah, that I I don't really think I have any more to say about this other than I think it could be interesting if anyone who's listening to this have involved Bali's as someone as something other than antagonists to hear how that went, how you did it, how that worked. Yeah, I I, I agree. I would really love to hear that, and especially if you have. Uh, included Bali characters that that are, are recurring characters that they're not just the, the villain of the week or the the person that the players go to meet to make a shady deal to to get some kind of corrupted power and then they never see them again. So so yeah, if if you're listening and if you have any cool ideas or or have or tell us stories about you have uh, how have you have run them. Then, then please tell us. Uh, drop us a line on Facebook or, or in the Discord or, or email. Or, or if you think that we're completely wrong and that the Bali is the best thing since, since sliced bread, and then please tell us as well. We'd, we'd love to hear some feedback from our listeners. Definitely. All right. Well, the next book we're going to be looking at two weeks from now is Libellus Sanguinis 2, Keepers of the Word, which includes two of uh, my favorite clans. So that's going to be interesting. Anyways, uh, Peter, do you have any last comments before we end? Uh, no, again, I'm, I just wanted to say thank you to all of our listeners. We're, we're over 100 uh, members in the Facebook group, which is really, really cool. So thank you everyone for that. And uh, please keep listening and if you have any ideas or suggestions or opinions 
uh, please let us know. Yeah, uh, we are always open for answering questions, engaging in debate, whatever. Um, and it is then goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Goodbye.